Let's open our Bibles now. We are in 2 Samuel chapter 23. We're going to look at verses 1 through 7. We bit off like 50 verses last week. Now we're seven verses in 23, but it's one section that we have to stop and talk about. The topic we're going to find there is that an aged King David writes the last of his inspired psalms. The title of our message, David's Swan Psalm. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we love you and uh, Lord, are captivated by the fact that you loved us first and that you've demonstrated that love fully and finally on the cross of Jesus Christ where the God-man died for the ungodly. While we were yet sinners, Lord, you died for us. You loved us that much. And you drew us by bands of love, convicting us by your Holy Spirit, bringing us into the knowledge of eternity. You're doing that to folks here this morning who don't know you. There's always one or two or several, Lord, that are here, whether they're young or old, whether they've been invited or whether they've come before. They're they're here and they don't know you. They've never really repented of their sin and come to the cross. I pray that you would save them today, Lord. We want to study your word. We always know that we're an advantage, Lord, because you've given us the Holy Spirit, who's really our teacher. And by that we understand and we mean that As we read your word and talk about it, you will take it and comfort our hearts with it, showing us more clearly Jesus Christ and his great grace for us. And so help us as we work through these verses, Lord. May it encourage and excite us to know that your coming is soon. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agree said, Amen. Yogi Berra once said, The future ain't what it used to be. I'm pretty sure he wasn't addressing issues in the church, but I do see a possible application of his words in contemporary Christianity. Over the past two or maybe three decades, there has been a noticeable shift away from an emphasis on the coming of the Lord and the establishing of his kingdom on the earth. As evidence, I would cite that as far back as 1988, Dave Hunt saw this trend and he wrote a book about it insightfully titled, Whatever Happened to Heaven? In it, he substantiated the shift in our thinking away from the blessed hope of the imminent return of Jesus to focusing on the here and now. For a lot of Christians, the future ain't what it used to be. It isn't a motivation to serve and to sacrifice now with the understanding that the real rewards are waiting for us in heaven. No, Christians are concentrating more on the here and now rather than the hereafter. David has something to say about this in the verses we have before us today. They are the final psalm he was inspired to write. In it, he summarizes his life and he surveys his coming afterlife in relation to the coming of the Lord. What was true of David, it's just as true of us. Our life and afterlife ought to be shaped by the coming of the Lord. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, you are anointed in life to reveal the coming of the Lord. And number two, you are appointed in the afterlife to revel in the coming of the Lord. Let's take a look in verses 1 through 4 at the anointing we have to reveal the coming of the Lord. Now, Bible characters, they seem larger than life, at least they do to me. They seem like spiritual superheroes. It can therefore be difficult to relate to them. 
We need to get over our awe and see that God is working in and through us in just the same ways he did with them. As proof, I'd offer the statement in the book of James that encourages Christians to pray because we are of like passions with none other, James says, than the prophet Elijah. And so James says, hey, you know, Elijah, a man of like uh, passions with you, he prayed and God accomplished something. He's just the same as you. You're just the same as him. You're a, a man. You're a woman that God wants to use. And so pray. And see what the Lord would do. Hebrews chapter 11 would be another passage we could cite. After mentioning some of those we definitely consider super saints, it goes on to say that the same faith was at work in tons of unnamed saints throughout the centuries. And we could certainly throw our hat in that ring. The idea again is that it's God who is at work. uh, And so let him work in your life the same way he worked in their lives. David is going to tell us that he was another ordinary guy. In fact, he was subordinary. Nevertheless, God used him in extraordinary ways. And so verse 1, now these are the last words of David. Thus says David, the son of Jesse, thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. By last words, the author means that this was the last inspired psalm David wrote these weren't his last words we'll get them later but they were the last inspired psalm that David wrote David wrote 73 of the 150 psalms in the book of psalms and he wrote others like this one that aren't in the psalms the house of Jesse was a lesser house a humble house among the Israelites you remember too that David was considered the least one the least person in that house And so David is saying something like, I was the least of a little house. And then he says, from those ordinary humble origins, I was raised up on high. Raised up is one of those terms we use a lot in the church. You know, if you become a Christian or hang around Christians, we start using uh, our own language that we sometimes understand and sometimes don't. But raised up is a, a good term. It's a Bible term. It means that we look to see how God has gifted and is using someone, and then we simply recognize it. It means that God is promoting the person into an area of ministry. They're not promoting themselves or others. Uh, And so, you know, a lot of people, that you become a Christian or you've been a Christian for a while, and you say, how do I know what God wants me to do or where God wants me to serve? Uh, and, And probably the best thing to do is to just get involved in a local fellowship of believers like Calvary Hanford, start coming as often as you can, and uh, you'll begin to see how God does use you. It may not be the way you want to be used, and that's not a bad thing. You know, it's not that I think we have the impression all the time that God is going to make us do something we find awful and terrible. You know, I don't want to I don't want to suggest that, you know, I would ever be a missionary because then God will send me to the very last place that I would want to go, Riverdale. No, I'm just kidding. But actually, I have a really cool Riverdale T-shirt now. I think it's a one of a kind. But uh, anyway, uh, you know. And so it's it's not that it's not that God has it in for you and He's going to slam you. Uh, it's that we should just, you know, a lot of times we have an idea of what we think we want to do or what God wants us to do. And we just need to hang out with Christians. We need to be 
you know, witnessing for Christ at our place of business or in our school and all, and we'll see how God is using us. And then you step back and say, okay, that's, that's how you were raised up to serve the Lord. It's too easy to promote ourselves or to get others to promote us. It's better to wait for the Lord to promote you because then you know that you have His empowering uh, and are walking in His strength. In the meantime, what we always encourage people to do, just enjoy your personal fellowship with the Lord. And you see, this is key because a lot of times, even Christians think, if I were doing this, or if I was over here, or if I lived here or went here, then... I would have really sweet fellowship with the Lord. We would be a lot closer than we are. And the truth is, you're never going to be any closer to the Lord by being in a different place or having a different ministry. It's really not about what you're doing outwardly. It's about what's happening inwardly in your walk with the Lord. And so, learn to enjoy Him. Paul the Apostle said he learned to be content in whatever state he was in whether he was abounding or being abased, whatever ministry that God gave him as well. Uh, and so the key is to just be in love with Jesus, fall in love with Jesus over and over again, enjoy that, and then see how he uses you. And from a church point of view, it's much better to just recognize people, to look and say, hey, God seems to be using that person in this way, so let's come alongside. Can we help you? God's using you. We want to help you. Uh, and, and what a blessing that is. Now, it says here, too, that David was the anointed of the God of Jacob. This refers to simply the fact that he was chosen by God to be king over the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes who sprang forth from Jacob. Anointed is another term we throw around in the church. It means literally to smear or to rub with oil. That's what the term anointed means. In Bible times, people were anointed with oil to signify either God's blessing or his call upon their lives. For example, prophets and priests and kings were all anointed with oil. David's anointing or being chosen by God was symbolized when the prophet Samuel poured oil over his head. Objects were also anointed in the Bible to signify they were set aside and dedicated for use by God. Now, our connection to being anointed is that in the New Testament you read every believer is said to be anointed. 2 Corinthians 1.21 Now he who establishes us with you in Christ has anointed us. Uh, 1 John 2.27 But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you. We believe John talking about the Holy Spirit as a kind of anointing that God gives you. And if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit abiding in you and so those verses and others indicate that every believer is considered anointed chosen set apart by God that's important because we sometimes use the word to describe people that are super spiritual we say things for example like that guy is really anointed as if he has something or she has something that the average Christian could never hope to have Now, I understand that there are times God really uses someone in a special way. Or you hear something and it really ministers to you. And you would say, man, there was a real anointing on that as far as... And that's not a wrong way to use the word. But I think you get what I'm saying this morning. We need to grasp this concept that we are all anointed by God, having received the indwelling Holy Spirit. So David, as he opens this psalm, he's saying, you're ordinary... But God has anointed you to do extraordinary things if you will just 
uh, follow his lead and allow him to work in your life. And what we want to not do is to perpetuate the myth of the super Christian. There is no such thing as the super Christian uh, in the sense that others can achieve what you cannot achieve. Uh, it, it's, it's just you cooperating with the Lord and allowing him to work in and through your life. Now, does that mean you're going to call down fire from heaven and kill the prophets of Baal like Elijah did? Does that mean you're going to be the king of Israel? No. The result isn't as important as uh, the understanding of who you are and where you are and what God wants you to do. And let's say you're at work and you are you know, privileged to share the gospel with somebody and you sow that seed. You don't even have to... Uh, see it come to fruition maybe years later that person will get saved and you're part of that process is that any less great than calling down fire on the prophets of Baal Uh, not really not not in the scope of things you know because God he says you know I I needed Elijah there at that moment of time and that's what his calling was Uh, he was an ordinary guy I gave extraordinary ministry to so are you right where you are at and so we need to quit thinking in terms of the you know, uh, the results and just work within what God has given us. Now, it says here, too, that David was the sweet psalmist of Israel. I like to think of this as kind of a stage name for David. Uh, You know, you think of David as king and warrior and all that. Uh, You know, probably he went around to coffee shops and played, you know, his instrument and sang psalms. And you'd go you'd go down to the coffee shop and you'd say, oh, the, who's here tonight? The sweet psalmist of Israel. And everybody would know that that was David. We give our musicians nicknames, don't we? For example, who is the piano man? You can, this, this is a time when we can interact if you do it peacefully. So, Billy Joel. How about the man in black? That's, that's an easy one. Uh, this one I thought would be tough, but everybody got it for a service. The Velvet Fog. Mel Torme, there you go, yeah. And uh, my favorite, the Motor City Madman. Ted Nugent, yeah. Ted Nugent forever. I don't think I even know a Ted Nugent song, but anyway, uh, good for him. What would your nickname... I've asked you this so many times over the years, and no one's ever answered me. Uh, If you feel like it, uh, you can. What would your nickname be based on your giftings and callings from God? I mean, just looking at how you serve the Lord, if we had to reduce you to a nickname. uh, Barnabas was the son of encouragement, you know. So what would you be? Who would you be? Uh, Think about that. And uh, if it's not flattering, uh, work on that. But anyway... I mean, if you find out, if you, don't ask your, you know, don't ask anybody close to you because they won't be close to you after that. I say, hey, gee, what's your nickname? I'd call you the son of discouragement. You mean encouragement? No, no, not at all. Uh, work on it. Verse two. The spirit of the Lord spoke by me and his word was on my tongue. Now, this is a declaration of the inspiration of scripture. We believe in what is called verbal plenary inspiration. Verbal means that every word of Scripture is God-given. The idea is that every single word in the Bible is there because God wanted it there. Plenary means that all the parts of the Bible are equally authoritative. This includes a genealogy as well as uh, you know, a promise from God. And so you, you can't just pick and choose which parts of the Bible 
are inspired. And inspiration means God guided the whole process. The idea behind the word is that God supernaturally guided. He breathed into the biblical authors to write the exact things that he wanted expressed using their human personalities. The result is the word of God. A.W. Pink described inspiration more poetic Uh, in a more poetic way, saying it is not simply that their minds were elevated or their spirits sublimated, but that their very tongues were regulated. Now, verse 3, the God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. Now, to me, David seems to be talking about both his reign as king in verse 3 and about a future king who will reign in verse 4. Verse 3 is pretty much a job description that God gave to David. Uh, Rule over men and be just. Rule in the fear of God. And by the way, it's a little bit of a digression, uh, but notice how concise that is as a job description. You're going to be the king of Israel and God says, be just. Rule in the fear of God. I have a personal aversion to job descriptions when it comes to ministry. I understand job descriptions and I I know that they can be important. And uh, if you're a person who writes job descriptions, I don't mean to offend you this morning. Trying to cover my bases here. But anyway, uh, a lot of times people in ministry say, well, what what is my job description? I say, well... Uh, how about you go to the cross and die to yourself and do whatever needs to be done? Yeah, sure, I know, but what, what do I actually do? Whatever needs to be done. And, and it's hard. I know it's hard for some people to function in that kind of an environment, but as far as I can tell by looking at Jesus Christ, who would be the prime example of you know, how a man filled with the Spirit should uh, act and react... Uh, Other than the fact that Jesus knew ultimately he was going to go to the cross, his job description was all over the map. I would have had a hard time, and I think most of us would have had a hard time, living for 30 years in relative obscurity, doing nothing but obeying your parents and being the best carpenter that you could be. Wow. I mean, that's, that's, I don't know if you think about that from the fact that Jesus Christ, God leaving heaven, coming to earth, and then for 30 years he does, from our perspective, nothing. That's hard. It's hard to do nothing. People are always chomping at the bit to get going and get things moving and stuff. That, that would have been hard. Then for three and a half years, he has a, a, a whirlwind ministry. But he's all over the place. I mean, you know, he never knows exactly what's going to happen. His father's telling him to go here, go here, do this, do that. His disciples are confused all the time because they can't tell what he's up to because he's following his father's intentions. You know, one time he says, we have to go through Samaria. And they said, that's Samaria. That's not even on the way where we're going. And Jesus said, yeah, but that's where we're going. And then he's trying to catch some sleep at a well and a woman comes out and he enters into a conversation with her and she's sarcastic. She's like putting him down and he continues to love her and says, well, you know, you know, and starts revealing to her her whole life and the whole city gets saved. I mean, it's fantastic. I don't even know if Jesus slept hardly for three and a half years. He's always ministering, getting exhausted, and then he's spending all night in prayer. 
modern minister would, would have taken seven sabbaticals during that time. Sabbaticals are the big thing right now. I have to, Gene and I laugh about this all the time, but everybody is on sabbatical all the time. You know what a sabbatical is, is when you get paid for doing nothing, is basically, you know, and stuff. And you can get away with it, go for it, you know, but all these pastors, oh, I have to go on sabbatical and, you know, study the Word of God and get my mind clear. And so they're gone for four, five, six months getting their minds clear. Okay. Jesus didn't do that. And I know, you know, he's unique. Yeah, he's the unique son of God. Sure. But Jesus said, I'm going to lay aside my deity. I'm going to lay it aside. I'm fully God, but I'm not going to touch it. I'm just going to be a spirit filled man. And for 30 years, I'm going to do relatively nothing. And for three and a half years, I'm going to not sleep. I'm going to be working so hard. And then what I really came to do, I'm going to do. I'm going to die on the cross. And so... Uh, I don't know how to give somebody a job description. And if you're ever, if we ever have an opportunity to hire you, don't ask me what your job description is or you'll be fired on the spot. Because if you don't know what you should be doing, I don't know how to tell you to do it. You just have to figure it out and let God lead you. Now, verse four, it seems to be a little bit more far reaching. His phrase, the light of the morning when the sun rises, reminds us of what the prophet Malachi said of the coming Messiah when he said the sun of righteousness will arise with healing in his wings. And so David saw himself as the king, and he saw the coming king, and he saw a connection in that his service as king should be a type or an illustration, a prefiguring of Jesus coming to serve as king. If you take all that we've learned in these four verses and put them together, here's what you have. Every ordinary humble believer is raised up and anointed by God to serve the Lord as a type or an illustration, a prefiguring of Jesus Christ coming to rule over the earth. The sense I have of this is that wherever I am, wherever you are, especially out in the world, in your workplace or at your school or in your neighborhood, you are bringing kind of a kingdom mentality to that place. You are the person who realizes that Jesus Christ is coming to rule over the world and you live as a citizen of that kingdom and as an ambassador for that kingdom as a result of which maybe not every day but certainly at certain times your neighbors or your co-workers will recognize that there's something very different about you you're foreign to them you're an alien as far as they're concerned because your actions and reactions are totally different than theirs to the same situation because you know that you are living a life for God in the shadow of his imminent return. You really are anointed in this life as a believer to reveal to others that the Lord is coming. And you're to be revealing his coming all the time. Even in things that you don't normally associate with his coming. For example, I'm always kind of uh, amazed by this. In Paul's teaching about the proper attitude we should have when we receive communion at the Lord's table. He said in 1 Corinthians 11, you are proclaiming the Lord's death till he comes. So just in my, you know, just a natural way of thinking, you think okay, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, uh, partaking of communion where I'm remembering what Jesus did the night before he was crucified. And he spoke of his body and his uh, blood uh, and the death that he would die. And I'm looking at the cross. And then Paul says, but don't forget, while you're looking at the cross, you're also thinking about 
the fact that this same Jesus is coming back. And, you know, Paul, you can't read too much in, uh, too far into Paul's epistles at all without him talking about the coming of the Lord. He was totally motivated by the return of Jesus Christ in a good way. It kept him moving forward because he thought, man, I might only have this one moment left. You might be the last person I talk to before the Lord comes back. And that kind of an attitude. At the end of the book of the Revelation, Jesus says three times, I am coming quickly. And then we read that the church is to respond, come, and to declare this coming to others in our invitation for them to receive eternal life. And so, really, quite simply, what we need to do is just take seriously the imminent return of Jesus. If I really believe he could return at any moment, it's going to dramatically affect my life. It doesn't mean I quit my job and sit on a hill. Paul established that in 1 Thessalonians. In 2 Thessalonians, he says, hey, yeah, that's not what we're talking about. Is you don't quit your job and wait for the Lord. You pour yourself into your job and share the Lord because his coming is so imminent. Now, verse 5 through 7 you're appointed in the afterlife to revel in the coming of the Lord. Yogi Berra also said, it's tough to make predictions, especially about the future. I think he was like, uh, you know, one of the most brilliant men of his era. Pretty good catcher, too. His statement, though, is not true when it comes to your future as a believer. It is easy to make predictions about the future. If you die before the Lord's return to resurrect and rapture the church, you're going to be absent from your body and immediately present in heaven with the Lord. At the Lord's coming, the dead in Christ are going to rise first and receive a glorified body. Then we which are alive and remain shall be changed into our glorified bodies. We're going to enjoy heaven with Jesus while the earth endures the seven years of the great tribulation. At the end of those seven years, we will return to earth with Jesus in his second coming. Jesus will then establish a 1,000-year kingdom on the earth, and we will help him to rule over it. I'm sure Riverdale will fit into my future somehow. Wouldn't that be fun? <laughs> After the 1,000 years, there will be a new heavens and new earth where we will live forever and ever in a perfect state in the mansions the Lord is busy preparing for us. And so we know our future. It's set. There's an afterlife quality to David's closing words. Let's read verses 5 through 7 together. It says, Although my house is not so with God, yet he has made me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire. Will he not make it increase? But the sons of rebellion shall be as thorns thrust away, because they cannot be taken with hands. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they shall be utterly burned with fire in their place. Let's take verses 6 and 7 first. David saw the eternal punishment of those who, in the end, reject Jesus Christ as their Savior from sin. He says they cannot be taken with hands, but the man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear in order to cast them into a place where they will burn. It reminds me, using a slightly different illustration, of Jesus' description of the judgment of sinners. For example, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus said, The Son of Man will send out His angels. They will gather out of His kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be a wailing and gnashing of teeth and then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. In the Gospel of Luke, John the Baptist says, 
His winnowing fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly cleanse out the threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And so this idea that, you know, some implement will be used to, in a sense, harvest the wicked and then throw them into an unquenchable fire, I, uh, it's that same idea followed through uh, in the scripture. And so we would say, and we do say, that unrepentant sinners have an appointment with hell. God is not willing that any should perish, but a person must come to Jesus Christ in order to receive eternal life. Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the whole world, but it is only effective for the person who believes that Jesus died for them personally. There's a big debate. I don't know how big it is. People make more of it than there should be, but there's some popular uh, theologians and those that call themselves Christians who are debating hell and whether it's a real place or not. And it's uh, common today for people to speak of annihilationism. I've talked to you about this before. Annihilationism is that if you die having rejected Christ, you will simply be annihilated and it will be as if you never existed. And it may sound strange to say this or for you to hear this, but I wish that were true. I wish that every person who rejected Jesus Christ would be annihilated rather than suffer an eternity in hell. But that is not what the Bible teaches. Jesus spoke more about hell than almost anyone. In fact, I think he did speak more about hell than anyone because it's such a reality. But God is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance and to eternal life. And days like this today, maybe you're at church, maybe you're not a believer, And uh, you're hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. The fact that the Lord loved you enough to die for you while you were yet a sinner. And all you have to do is believe that. Trust Him for your salvation. And you will gain heaven and avoid hell. When you receive Christ, as most of us have, you're appointed to the afterlife I described a moment ago. That sequence of events will be enacted in your life. Look now at verse 5, and let's read it again in the context we've just established. David says, Although my house is not so with God, yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire. Will he not make it increase? It seems to mean that even though David's life was blemished, God had established his house by an unconditional everlasting covenant. God's covenant was therefore ordered in all things and secure. It did not depend upon David. So whether you look at this as David saying, well, you know, there were problems in my house or just my house was a little house, a human house. You know, there's nothing to commend it. But the idea is that God swore me an unconditional promise, an everlasting covenant. And it is ordered in all things and secure. It doesn't depend upon David and it doesn't depend upon us. David could look back on his life and see it the way God did. His life was all about God's salvation. And despite David's serious faults, God was always his heart's desire. In the end, David saw that God would make it increase. Make what? Increase. Well, it seems to refer to his salvation. How can a person's salvation increase? Well, I think David had in mind that God would complete the work he had begun in him and that God would reward him for his service. There would be an increase. Salvation is a three-stage process. First, you are justified. 
When you as an ungodly sinner simply believe on the Lord for salvation, you are declared righteous and you are accepted by God just as if you'd never sinned. You are saved. You know, don't think about it too often, but people, they don't clean themselves up and come to God. They don't get their life right and then uh, present themselves to God. God comes to you and he says, you are an ungodly sinner. But if you will believe that I died for you and took your place... I will declare that you are righteous. From a legal point of view, you are not guilty. It's just as if you'd never sinned. It's the declaration of God. Second, you are being sanctified. If you will trust God for your salvation, then He begins this process of day by day working on you to make you righteous. This is, an, uh, this is a work that you cooperate with or that you can hinder. And third and finally, you will be glorified when by death or at the rapture you receive your glorified body. And so I I think David is referring to the fact that we are promised that God who has saved us and begun a good work in us will in fact perform it and complete it. We're told as Christians that we will stand before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ and we will be rewarded for those things we did from the right motives and by his spirit. In short, like David, but with even more confidence, we can know that we have an appointment in the afterlife where we can increase. The Lord wants to increase us. He wants to make us more like His Son, Jesus Christ. And so you get saved. You get saved as an ungodly sinner. And then we're studying on Wednesday night. It's kind of interesting. It fits in with this. And and then people say, okay, well, if I get saved when I'm ungodly... Do I continue to be an ungodly sinner and God's grace just abounds? And Paul says, no, that's not how it works. Because the moment you're saved, then you find that you, something else has taken place. You're now dead to sin. And he goes on to explain that. You can consider yourself dead to sin and say yes to God and begin to cooperate with God in a daily walk of becoming more like Jesus Christ until finally he takes you home. And so we look forward to this appointment to see the Lord face to face. We revel in it knowing that we have committed ourselves not just to the Lord, but to serving Him, to surrendering to Him, to sacrificing for Him. All that is lost if we forget that the Lord is coming at any moment. C.S. Lewis said, the future is something which everyone reaches at the rate of 60 minutes an hour. Whatever he does, whoever he is. God gives us each hour, as it were, towards that inevitable future as a gift. In those 60-minute blocks, we can cooperate with His sanctifying work or we can hinder it. Once again, my belief about the Lord's coming is the key. If I really believe He could return within the hour, I'm going to do everything I can to cooperate with Him to be changed into His image. I'm going to be looking for opportunities. I'm going to take advantage of them. I'm going to be crying out to Him to help me. Lord, you said that you use ordinary people. There's nobody more ordinary than me. You know, a lot of times, and and I feel the same way too, you feel me, you know, Lord, there's no way that you could use me. I don't know enough. I haven't done enough. I don't have the experience. I'm the last person in the world that you should ask to do this. And you know, the more you actually believe that, the better off you are. I mean, if it's not a false humility, if that's a true humility, because then God can say, yeah, this is exactly the person that I'm looking for. It's you, because otherwise you're just going to get in the way. If, if, 
you're going to think that it's your knowledge, that it's your training, that it's your wit and witticism, that, that you contributed anything to this, then, then we're going to have a problem. The work that I really want to do in this other person's life or in this group of people's lives, it's going gonna, it's gonna to fall short because you injected something of yourself when in reality I want you to know that you are the least of the least. And therefore I can use you because all the glory will go to me. It doesn't mean you don't learn and grow and try and increase you know, in your area of ministry. It, it does mean that you always remember that there was nothing about you to commend you to God, that He would use you in any way. But He has chosen to do that anyway. And what a blessing to just be an ordinary Christian. It should be mind-boggling, but also freeing for you to understand that you don't need to be an extraordinary Christian. You don't need to be a super saint. You're not a Christian superhero. All of us have been leveled out. God says, you know, we can look at Elijah and think, wow, Elijah. But God says, yeah, everybody's like Elijah. Why don't you pray the way Elijah prayed? It wasn't that he was a super saint. Elijah didn't walk through a prayer labyrinth. He didn't discover ancient forms of meditation that unlock spiritual secrets. See, this is somehow, we think this way sometimes, even though we don't verbalize it, we think, well, Elijah must have, you know, he must have had something that we didn't have because I can't imagine myself calling down fire on the altar during the time when the prophets of Baal are doing their thing. Well, for one thing, you're not ever going to be in that situation. There, there aren't 450 prophets of Baal. There, Jezebel's long gone. You're not going to find yourself in that situation. You're going to find yourself in the break room at work where somebody's asking a question about what's happening in the world or what do you think about this or what do you think about that. This week, you know, somebody's going to say, hey, I read that Amy Winehouse died. What do you think about that? What do I think about it? I think it's tragic because... God had a plan and a purpose for her life the way he has a plan and a purpose for every life. Just turn it. And, and that, that's your bail moment. That, and, and it's every bit as powerful as calling down fire from heaven because you're calling upon heaven to work on the hearts of men and women. And so we have to totally get out of our heads this, this Hollywood mentality that we have about what it means to be a Christian. Hey, don't get me wrong, it's, it, it'd be exciting to you know, call down fire from heaven and to then kill all the prophets of Baal. That'd be a rush. But that story went on. You remember Elijah, he, he got pretty depressed. Jezebel said, yeah, I'm going to kill you. And, and Elijah, he, he started running and running and running until he got to a cave. And God said, what are you doing here? And he had a pity party. You know, so I mean, it's not all fun and games when you're doing this kind of stuff. If you, you know, you want to be an Elijah, you are an Elijah, James says. You're Elijah. And if Elijah were here, if you were back then, you would have done that. Because I could use anybody to do that. It wasn't that Elijah was anything special. He was just the person I chose. And, and if Elijah were alive today, he'd be in this break room. All of us were the same. And it's God that is great. It's God that is mighty. And I need to think, Lord, are you coming right now? What should I be about? Maybe it's, it's exactly what you should be about. There's a story told of D.L. Moody, 
one's a great American evangelist. He's coming back. I think he's coming back from England. He's on a ship, obviously, crossing the Atlantic. At least I got my ocean right. And uh, terrible storm. I mean, just a nasty storm. And everybody thought the boat was going to go down. And so they decided to have a prayer meeting. Go down to the you know, belly of the boat and have a prayer meeting. And they, somebody noticed that Moody wasn't there. And so they looked for him. And he was up on deck, just looking over the rail. They said, Mr. Moody, aren't you going to come and pray with us? And he said, son, I'm all prayed up. Now, nothing wrong with having a prayer meeting, but he was all prayed up. He said, I'm, I'm ready. I don't need to have a panic prayer meeting right now because God, you know, it, I, I, this is what I need to be doing right now. I'm spending some time with the Lord. Uh, and so it doesn't mean that we all drop everything that we're doing to do something else. Chances are you are already doing exactly what God wants you to do, but he wants you to have a new way of doing it with the understanding that I'm Elijah, I'm David. I'm moody. I'm that, but I'm the person that God has put here. Why, you know, Don McClurk one time he said in a message, he said, he said, God doesn't need two Billy Grahams and none of you. He needs one Billy Graham and he needs you because Billy Graham is never going to be where you are. He's never going to be where I am. And so I need to enjoy my walk with the Lord wherever I am and believe that he's coming imminently and rise to the occasion when he tells me, to minister. If the future ain't what it used to be for you, then get back into it. I don't know what else we can do here. I mean, you know, prophecy updates and the coming of the Lord. The Lord is coming and his coming is imminent. It could happen at any moment. And if that's not enough, just remember that you're going to be with him could happen at any moment. I kind of I, I like the rapture idea, don't you? I'm planning on living to the rapture. But life is a vapor. It appears for a moment and then it vanishes away, James said. None of us know how long we have. Let's just invest in the future. Let's think about the future. Sometimes people say, well, you know, you think about the future so much that you're no earthly good. Only people who are waiting for the return of the Lord can do good, the ultimate good. Let's pray.